Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos in Dubai. I'm sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And just ahead on today's program... Document drama. The U.S. Attorney General appoints a special counsel in the President Biden classified document case. And that's as Democrats fret over the potential political fallout. And Cook's commitment, Apple CEO asks for and gets a steep 40 percent pay cut amid high compensation concerns. This is part of a corner office trend. But first, a check of the global markets. U.S. stocks set for a lower open. That's across the board, as you can see. And that's as U.S. earnings season gets underway in earnest. A number of major U.S. banks just out with Q4 results. Their shares set to open lower. European shares mostly higher and on track for a second straight week of gains. And that's after a positive Asian handover. Now, investors encouraged by news that the UK economy uh, grew ever so slightly in the fourth quarter versus expectations for a contraction. Germany's economy growing at a faster pace than expected last year, too. All of this after news Thursday that US inflation eased for a sixth straight month in December. This could give the Fed room to raise rates by a less aggressive quarter of a percentage point at its next policy meeting. Now, as for the action in the banking sector, decent results overall, but concerns about how a weaker economy will impact profits going forward. JP Morgan reporting a 6% profit rise, but the bank is setting aside more money in case loans go bad. CEO Jamie Dimon warning of new headwinds as well. More on back profits later in the show, but first... Russia's defense ministry says its forces have taken control of the town of Solidar in eastern Ukraine. But a Ukrainian official has dismissed that claim, saying fighting is still going on. The battle has been brutal, with heavy losses on both sides. On the evening of January 12th, the liberation of the city of Solidar, which is important for the continuation of successful offensive operations in the Donetsk region, was completed. Establishing full control over Solidar makes it possible to cut off the supply routes for Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut and then block and take into Kodron the units of the armed forces of Ukraine remaining in it. <clears throat> well, CNN's Ben Wiedemann and his team are just outside the town. Let's take a look. We're in a trench, just about two and a half miles or four kilometers uh, from the front, from Soledad. Now, the situation in Soledad at this point is not altogether clear. Ukrainian officials say they still hold part of it. Speaking to the soldiers, it's a mixed story. Some of them say it's either fallen or it's about to fall. Others say they still are making minor advances uh, inside. Now, what's interesting in these forward positions 
uh, we've speak, spoken to many of the soldiers. They're fairly confident, and morale seems surprisingly high given the situation. They're confident that they can hold uh, these positions, a rear position. But what appears to be going on is an organized pullout from uh, the town of Soledad. We've been watching as they've been firing mortars in the direction of Russian positions and rockets as well. You can hear, in fact, some of the thuds of some of that uh, fire. Some of it, of course, going towards Soledad, some in the direction of Bakhmut, and of course there is fire coming the other direction. I'm Ben Wiedemann, CNN, outside Soledad. Well, let's get more on this. We've got CNN Scott McLean in uh, Kiev and has some new information for us as well. Um, look, uh, Scott, we've heard conflicting reports about uh, Solidar's salt uh, mining town. Russia says it's taken control. What are the uh, Ukrainians saying at this point? We've just heard from Ben Wiedemann that the soldiers he's talking to saying that the fighting is still going on. Um, and, and there's also sort of mixed information that is emanating from the front line. Yeah, that's right. It really depends on who you talk to. Case in point, we've been in touch with a soldier inside of the city as recently as last night who said that um, his unit had been abandoned, that they were running low on water, they had no food, and their window to actually withdraw and pull out was closing very quickly if it hadn't closed already. So it seemed like they were very much pinned down. The Ukrainians officially say that Look, they are still continuing to fight. But as you heard from Ben there, he's describing something that looks more like an orderly withdrawal. I just spoke with a soldier who was in Bakhmut Solidar and obviously continues to be in touch with soldiers uh, on the front line. And this is how he described the Ukrainian presence in the town. So, uh, to my knowledge, uh, all our regiments have already been moved to the western outskirts of uh, Solidar. And Russians encircled the city from uh, north and south, but they didn't manage to make full encirclement. Uh, so Ukrainian regiments can easily withdraw in, or in, in case if uh, such an order would be issued. It's safe to say that the Ukrainians have a toehold in the town, but just barely. Well, it's, it would be fair to say that Ukrainians still holding some parts of Solidar, but uh, I would say some minor parts of the town. I also asked him, Eleni, about morale, and he said, uh, confirming Ben's point, that it is quite high at the moment. And the reason for that is that, look, the Ukrainian troops recognized that the Russians needed a win, and they threw everything but the kitchen sink at this particular town. But from the Ukrainian point of view, they don't think that Solidar is, frankly, all that important, that it's all that strategic. It only had about 10,000 people before the war, and this soldier says that virtually everything inside of that town has been completely destroyed, and so there's really not that much fighting for. And he said that the plan going into this defense of Solidar was not to fight till the death, not to hold on to it at all costs, but it was to hold on as long as they could, and in the process, try to kill as many Russian troops and Wagner mercenaries as they possibly could. And he says by that measure, this was a success. And so now it seems like they're moving back. They're maybe on the outskirts of town. But uh, in terms of trying to recapture Solidar immediately, that doesn't seem to be a priority at this moment. 
I also asked him whether they're concerned that this gives the Russians perhaps more ammunition to go at Bakhmut or a different angle or to cut off supply lines to Bakhmut, which is really a more strategic town that is a stronghold for the Ukrainians. And he said, no, there's still plenty of supply routes into Kramatorsk. There's still plenty of ways to defend it or sorry, to Bakhmut, excuse me. He thinks that the real uh, prize for the Russians right now isn't going to be Bakhmut. It is going to be Kramatorsk, a much bigger city, Eleni. Hmm. Yeah, and the story, of course, is evolving. We'll be keeping you updated in the coming hours. Scott McLean, thank you very much uh, for that insight. So moving to Washington now, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointing a special counsel to investigate whether President Biden mishandled classified materials. Earlier this week, it emerged that classified documents from the Obama administration were found at the president's home in Delaware and his former private office in Washington. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed joins me now uh, with the latest. It is interesting, this special counsel investigating both sitting and current presidents uh, and, and former presidents. Um, of the mishandling of classified documents. The question now becomes why the White House didn't get out in front of this sooner. Absolutely. This is going to be taught in crisis communications classes for years. Yeah. It is unclear why the White House did not get out in front of this. Almost everything we've learned before yesterday's press conference uh, came from media reports and was then followed by these begrudging statements from the White House that often let, uh, let, left out key details. Now, going forward, it is unlikely that the White House is going to change their approach. Their argument has been that they are deferring to the Justice Department, allowing it to do its work. But what we've seen with other investigations like this, for example, the investigation into possible mishandling of classified information by Hillary Clinton, what we saw there is if the public... If voters, if they feel like there's constantly new classified documents popping up, they're not getting all the information, they kind of suspect a cover-up, even if no legal charges are ever brought, these cases can become serious political liabilities. And that is what he appears to have right now. The president does not appear to be any direct legal jeopardy. There are also uh, rules and norms against indicting a sitting president, but he has a serious communications problem that can easily balloon into a political problem. Yeah, and that's a question, sort of what is the political fallout here? But many are asking, what is the difference, if any, between what we saw with Donald Trump and classified uh, documents and the Biden administration at the moment? Big differences here. Uh, first of all is the volume of information that we're talking about. As of now, uh, we have confirmed 10 documents at one of the Biden locations. We don't know how many at the others. But with Trump, we're talking about hundreds of documents that he retained. There is also this issue of, of cooperation. The Biden team said they did the right thing. They called the archives. They cooperated with the Justice Department. The Trump team, former president, did not do that. Uh, they were not cooperative, which is part of why he's under investigation for possible obstruction of justice. So there are a lot of key differences between these two investigations, not only in the volume of material, how they've handled themselves and the different crimes that are being examined here. But I will caution, you know, we don't know that much about the Biden situation. This case, to our knowledge, is only we've only known about this for about five days. It's been going on for about two months. 
where the Trump case, it was almost a year and a half uh, before that came to light with the duly executed search warrant at his Mar-a-Lago residence. So while, yes, they, they aren't really apples to apples right now, one is certainly far more serious. It's not even the first special counsel that has investigated the former president. We do need to caution that we don't know what we don't know. And now there's a special counsel who is going to investigate more thoroughly what's going on with the Biden classified documents. And we will be finding out a lot more, I'm sure, in the coming days. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Now to China. The world's second largest economy's exports are shrinking sharply, while trade data with uh, Russia hitting a new record high. Mark Stewart is in Hong Kong with the details for us. There are two big headlines concerning China's economy. First, let's talk about exports, the items that China ships to other nations. The end of the year revealed some challenges. According to government data, exports plunged by nearly 10 percent in December compared to the same month the previous year. To give you some context, it's the worst drop since the start of the coronavirus outbreak in February 2020. So what's behind the contraction? Some analysts from Capital Economics are pointing to weakening global demand and disruptions due to labor shortages that occurred because of illness as things started to reopen. And then another significant headline. China's trade with Russia hits a record high. This is according to a spokesman from China's trade authority, accounting for 3 percent of China's total trade. It comes at a time when China and Russia have strengthened a closer economic relationship after Russian President Vladimir Putin visited Beijing early last year. Back to you. All right, straight ahead. The president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce joins me to discuss the state of American businesses and the challenges they face this year. And later, Lena Times for Apple's top boss, White Tim Cook, asked for, and he was given a huge pay cut. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. When it comes to Washington, the state of American business is fed up. That was the message from U.S. Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Suzanne Clark Thursday during the annual State of American Business Address. The Chamber of Commerce is the world's largest business organization. Its members range from Fortune 500 companies to mom-and-pop shops, representing the full spectrum of the American business community. But Clark says business owners are frustrated and urge lawmakers to do better. Businesses don't have the clarity or the certainty to plan past the next political cycle. It means our country won't be able to advance an agenda that extends beyond two or four years or past the policies needed to position us for our future. Well, Clark outlined what the U.S. Chamber is calling its agenda for American strength, which includes bolstering strength through building people, energy, global leadership and rule of law. Joining me now is Suzanne Clark, president and CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Great to see you. I mean, what a journey, what a ride over the past few years, whether it was the pandemic, whether what we're seeing now with um, geopolitical tensions and that resulting in an inflationary environment. It has been a tough journey. But you say that business is fed up with Washington. I want you to tell me what is worrying business the most right now. Thank you and, and good morning to you. Look, I think it 
the end of the day, what we're seeing in the United States is companies saying the state of their own business is strong, but that the state of the economy is fragile and they're worried about government not doing the right thing. They're fed up and, and almost in a state of despair over a lack of national leadership on solving really complex problems. So this is a moment our chief economist counsel is saying to us could end up in a mild recession in the middle of next year. But there are things the government could come together and accomplish and do right now for American families and businesses and to the benefit of our allies. Um, you know, when we were watching what was playing out with uh, electing House Speaker, there, there was a growing sense that this concern that the Senate and the House won't reach consensus on certain issues. Are businesses feeling the same in terms of consensus on spending, legislative efforts and so forth. What, what are you hearing? I think we're hearing two different things. The first thing that we're hearing, again, is concern on behalf of companies that our government won't take their roles seriously. And that's everything from an administration that's doing too much, that is overzealous in their regulatory approach and way outside of the authority and lane that they should be in, to a fear that Congress won't step up and do the things it needs to do, like uh, defaulting on the debt, like increasing increasing that debt limit. So there are concerns on both ends, government doing too much and government doing too little. I think if you, we'd spoken about inflation a few years ago, um, you know, it really wasn't on the agenda. We're looking at an inflationary environment. Numbers are looking, you know, a little bit better over the last couple of months. But there's still major concern, and that's resulted in an unprecedented scenario where the Fed had to hike aggressively. Um, business confidence has slid. Um, to what extent are you seeing major concern about where inflation is going? Because let's be real here. This is going to impact input costs. It starts raising questions of just how much to pass on to the consumer, and that could result in a weaker economic scenario. It's an excellent question, and I think your open was a sophisticated take too, right? Which is most of the leaders in positions today weren't in positions like this the last time inflation was this high. So we're also looking at business and government leaders who've never seen anything like this. It's, it's new muscle everyone's developed on top of the new muscle everybody had to develop during the pandemic. So you're right that I think leaders are concerned. How do you set your pricing strategy? How do you think about budgets? How do you think about your supply chains? It's, a, it's certainly a complex time to operate a business. That said, a lot of CEOs are optimistic that they can get through this right with the right fiscal policies. And it's one of the reasons we talked yesterday during the speech about America's worker shortage. If you think about the numbers that came out yesterday, there was, yes, good news. But if you looked underneath it all, service industry inflation was still growing. That is in large part due to labor cost. It's why addressing the worker shortage is so important. We're having problems with childcare in the United States. A number of childcare centers closed during the pandemic and have not reopened. Some of that is due to regulatory morass and how hard it is to get a permit. We have problems with not allowing enough legal immigrants into this country. We've got millions of migrants illegally crossing the border. And yet legal migration is low, historically low. We need more engineers and more nurses. We've got to be able to secure our border and double the number of employment-based visas to help get at this worker shortage that's driving inflation. 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting perspective in terms of workers' shortages and how to alleviate that pressure. Uh, in that breath, I mean, we're hearing about potential recessionary scenarios. We don't really know if it's going to be a tough <laughs> environment we'll be dealing with in the next year, whether it's going to be mild. Um, what are businesses planning for and pricing in? You know, again, when we get the chief economists from America's big smart companies together, they're still hopeful. I mean, I think they're largely predicting a mild recession in the middle of this year, of 2023. That said, there are things that we can do to mitigate it. And so I think people are trying to be practical. It gets back to being fed up. CEOs have to get up every day and employ their people, serve their customers, serve their markets, uh, take care of their employees. And we need government to do their jobs. Enough with outrage politics and clickbait. Let's get down to what can we do to mitigate this potential recession. Suzanne, just one last question. Um, the Japanese delegation is visiting. Um, you recently ha- held the U.S.-Africa summit as well. Um, to what extent as well are you as businesses looking to invest, expand out of country, given the uncertainties locally and also the global economic environment? Excellent question and important point. You know, we have some 75 or 80 people who work full time in international on investments here, investments abroad, relationships with allies and certainly trade deals. And a big part of what we're pushing for here is to revive America's trade agenda. We have not inked a new trade deal in the last 10 years. Meanwhile, the rest of the globe has inked 100, leaving the United States behind. We need access to other markets. We need better deals with our allies. We need to be setting global standards. And we are pushing the Biden administration to get that trade agenda back and alive, both to help our allies, to help us, and to help American families. It was great to see you, Suzanne. Thank you so much uh, for your insights. Much appreciated for your time. Thank Suzanne you. Clark, there, the president and CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. All right, so although inflation is easing in the U.S., consumers may not feel it just yet. Small businesses uh, and owners are still struggling and bracing for a host of challenges in 2023. And that's from a looming recession to the ongoing recovery from the pandemic. CNN's Gabe Cohen has more for us. At Teddy and the Bully Bar near downtown D.C., business post-pandemic has never been the same. I'm still climbing the hill. COVID closed two of Alan Popovsky's four restaurants. Government loans saved the other two. But with city centers struggling to bring back traffic, his revenue is still down more than 45% from pre-pandemic. And Alan says they're struggling to stay open. And now it's time to pay back those loans. It's very difficult. We just got over paying back the landlord. You're just a hamster spinning on a wheel. At the start of COVID, with business stalled, nearly 4 million small business owners took out what are called economic injury disaster loans, or EIDL loans, from the federal government. On average, about $100,000. In many cases, just to stay afloat. 30 years with a fixed interest rate of 3.75%. And unlike some other pandemic programs, EIDL loans were expected to be paid back down the road. Now the first monthly payments are coming due. Most businesses will owe money by the end of January. It's daunting. Allen says he owes more than $3,700 per month, roughly $780,000 in all, a lot of which he says he spent on rent and payroll. 
we can't afford anything. But what we're doing is we're paying interest only right now. So you haven't made a dent on the actual loan? Have not made a dent on the principal. A new survey from a leading small business association found only 36% of its members have reached their pre-pandemic sales levels amid staffing shortages, supply chain issues, and inflation. Now add a possible looming recession just as these loans come due. It is one more cost that they're going to have to deal with. Some small business owners, unfortunately, are going to struggle in kind of meeting those obligations. Let's open up your diaphragm here a little bit and see if that helps. Lisa Klein says COVID is still keeping some clients away from her physical therapy practice, making it tough to pay off her idle loan, nearly $1,000 each month with 80000 to go. All the costs of everything have gone up. We can't pay the staff what we'd like to pay the staff. The whole business is still suffering, and this is just kind of adding insult to injury. The Small Business Administration says struggling businesses can declare hardship and make small partial payments for six months. But interest keeps accruing, forcing owners like Lisa Klein to weigh short-term protection against a big bill down the line. We have no choice because if we don't keep paying it, it's going to accrue more interest. All right, CNN's Gabe Cohen reporting there for us. And coming up on the show, banking on the banks. Wall Street earnings season begins, not with a bang, but with a whimper as results from the financial sector disappoint. We'll tell you what the results say about the health of the global economy and what that means going forward. That's coming up next on First Move. My trading has just begun in New York. It is the last day of the week. And as you can hear, excitement as always as the ringing of the bell happens. As you can see, Dow Jones uh, down seven tenths of a percent. Nasdaq's in the green and S&P also losing about one percent at this point in time. Uh, welcomes, of course, the memorial of the foundation in celebration of Martin Luther King today. Uh, his legacy lives on. All right, so U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street. It is the last trading day uh, before a long holiday weekend. Watch out, bulls. It's also Friday. It's the 13th. I forgot about that. We're not superstitious whatsoever. That said, it's a week open for all the major averages as U.S. earnings season gets underway. In earnest, the Nasdaq pulling back after a 15th, uh, fifth rather, straight session of gains. Tesla shares falling in early trading on news that it is slashing EV prices in the U.S. and Europe amid ongoing demand concerns. Reductions of around 20 percent in some cases. All of this hot on the heels of Tesla's price cuts in China and the news uh, pressuring shares of other auto giants as well. Investors worry that sales of their electric vehicles will be impacted too. As you can see, Tesla in the red, down over 5%. GM as well, losing almost 5%. Um, Shares of major U.S. banks are also trading mostly lower as investors dig deep uh, into the just-released Q4 results. Investors concerned that banks are once again adding to their reserves in case loans go bad. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warning of economic headwinds ahead as well. John Petridis is uh, joining me now. He's a portfolio manager at Tocqueville uh, Asset Management. John, great to see you. Thank you so very much. I mean, I was just looking at some of these numbers and it's not so much about the Q4 results themselves, but it's about the forward-looking statements that I think everyone is really worried about what the future holds. 
Could you break this down for us? And let's start with JP Morgan, because frankly, these economic headwinds we've heard before. Uh, Jamie Dimon mentioned these last year. I guess he's reiterating the point that we're still not out of the woods. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. That's right. Uh, Jamie Dimon did say, you know, uh, about six months ago or so that he was expecting a hurricane to come in the fall. And and now he's kind of backtracked a little bit from that. Uh, But he did say in the press release that he thinks that, um, uh, you know, the central case, the base case is that recession is on the horizon. Uh, But if you take a look at the banks in general, and there are a handful, the global banks, uh, the multinationals, and also the regionals, uh, some that reported, uh, there are two things going on. One, the banks are healthy in general from a balance sheet standpoint. So anyone worried about 2008, 2009, this is not that situation. Uh, Although they are reserving more, uh, that's more of an accounting regularity that they have to reserve for uh, to, to increase their reserve loans. The loan portfolios, by and large, are still quite healthy. You've seen some tick up in uh, in in the consumers' uh, uh, loan delinquencies pick up a little bit, but we're still well below 2019 levels in general. Uh, banks have spent a lot of time uh, cutting costs or working through their efficiency ratio. The biggest issue, and this is the the sort of the uh, the the concern with lack of visibility on bank earnings, is deposit beta, meaning the the cost for CDs, the cost to pay out with the yield curve inverted, meaning that short-term bonds are yielding more than long-term bonds, and investors are trying to get more income from their savings, banks have to pay them more on their CDs. They're paying them more in their savings. And the spread with their getting on what they're loaning is really tight, if not going in the opposite direction for what's profitable for banks. The banks really want to see, in general, a positive yielding, uh, a positive slope curve. They want short-term borrowing costs to be less than what they're charging on loans. And right now, it's the opposite. And all that will depend on how long and how high the Fed keeps interest rates. And and as interest rates come down, that'll be better for the banks in the short term because their their cost that they're paying savers on CDs could go down. John, you know, you mentioned something really interesting. And of course, this was sort of across the board where banks are, you know, gearing up for a potential increase in defaults or loan defaults. Um, Do you think this is just the banks being prudent or do you think this is based in a real risk scenario that could emerge? The answer is twofold. Um, I do think the banks are being prudent Uh, there. But but really out of 2008, they've been required to have uh, enough reserves on their balance sheet capital ratio so we don't have a repeat of 2007, 2008, 2009 ever again. So they have more than enough capital on their balance sheet. The banks also uh, a year or two ago were required uh, to to follow something called CECL, uh, current expected credit losses, which basically is the accounting uh, regularity that says uh, the the banks need to, every loan that the bank makes, they have to put some probability that it's going to default and reserve for it. So it's it's kind of like the moment that you're a banker, you make a loan, you have to ex- assume that there's some percentage that's going to default right away. Yeah. So part of their reserves that they have to put is for this accounting regularity. And if the forecast for uh, the economy is to weaken, let's say over the next 12 to 15 or 18 months, then every loan you're making today, the likelihood of some sort of default goes up, which requires them to uh, reserve more. So th- there's a couple of factors going on there for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, look, a big lessons learned uh, with regards to capital adequacy ratios uh, from what we saw in 2008. So we definitely don't want to repeat that. But look, you've, you've got a rise in interest rates, which is, you know, pretty unprecedented historically in the United States. And then it brings into question the ability of consumers to be able to pay off their loans. You've got inflation easing a bit. We don't really know what the Fed's next move is going to be. But how are you weighing up all these uncertainties, which yeah. are very much in play right now? Yeah, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head on the conundrum that the world is facing because the consumer is actually proving to be a bit more resilient than what the math would tell you. Uh, you know, when your eggs go up 30% and your gasoline to fill up your car is up, you know, yeah. 15% and the cost of everything, judging by the, you know, inflation numbers are up 6.5% year over year. And that's, you know, we, we all know and feel that the cost of living is significantly higher today than it was a year ago. Uh, and if your wages are not keeping up with that, it's how is the consumer hanging in like it is? And the, the only thing that we could point to really is that the unemployment situation is very tight. You have an unemployment rate below 4%. Uh, you have job openings still north of 10 million. So if you do get laid off, there are job opportunities out there. Uh, wages are still growing north of 4%, closer to 5%. So uh, it's a conundrum that, that the cost of everything is higher, but the consumer has been able to hang in uh, better than what I would have expected at this point. Um, but, but clearly the momentum going forward looks like the economy is continuing to slowing, looks like the consumer is going to be running into the wind. So I, I think for the next several quarters, we're going to continue to be scrutinizing uh, the, the health of each bank's balance sheet for sure. Absolutely. And whether um, wage growth is meeting what you're seeing on the inflation front. Um, it is an interesting scenario, one that you sometimes see playing out mostly in emerging markets. But John Petridis, thank you so much. Good to see you. Great to see you as well. We'll Thanks talk for having again me soon, I'm sure. Portfolio Absolutely. Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. All right. Ask and you shall receive. Apple CEO Tim Cook asked for a pay cut and he got a massive one. The world's largest tech company said it would reduce Cook's pay package to $49 million. That might uh, not sound too bad to most of us, but it's 40% lower than his target pay. For 2022, the cut comes after Apple's stock fall, uh, which fell nearly 27% last year. Paula Monica joins me now. I was just doing the math. I mean, do we even earn that in a lifetime? I don't know, but I have to work that out. Paul, good to see you. <laughs> Take me through. I don't through think I do, Eliana. What? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think most of us don't. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Let's be honest here. Tim Cook is obviously still uh, paid very handsomely for running Apple, the world's largest uh, company that is still doing reasonably well despite the massive stock drop last year, which, to be honest, was not exclusive to Apple. In fact, Apple actually held up slightly better than the NASDAQ and many other of the so-called FANG stocks. But Tim Cook realizes that, you know, you can't skate by and just say, hey, we did less worse, so pay me as much as I used to get. You know, consider his pay package before last year was closer to $100 million, and a lot of the reasons for the big drop in the price is because of Apple's share price falling as dramatically as it is, and his compensation, much of it is tied to the stock and stock grants. So it's only natural that if Apple's stock 
and Apple investors are getting hit, then Tim Cook as a big shareholder needs to as well. Paul and Monica, great to see you. Thank you very much for breaking that big number down for us. All right, still to come. Deadly protests grip Peru as senior government minister resigns and calls for fresh elections. More on developments there. That's coming up next. In Peru, a senior government minister has resigned amid deadly protests and called on the president to hold fresh elections. At least 49 people have died in clashes between police and demonstrators since the impeachment and arrest of former President Pedro Castillo in December. CNN's Rafael Romo is following developments and joins us now. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, in the past month, there have been calls for the new president, Dina Boluarte, to resign and also calls to move up elections. How has the situation evolved since the resignation of uh, the former president, Pedro Castillo, in December? Hi, Lenny. That's right. It's a political crisis that has been going on for years, and it only mm. seems to get worse. The latest turn started in December when then-President Pedro Castillo was impeached after he tried to dissolve Congress ahead of a vote on his impeachment that he saw he was likely to lose. After he was ousted, protests broke out throughout the South American country, leaving 49 people dead as of Thursday afternoon, according to a report by the Peruvian ombudsman. And the crisis doesn't seem to be getting any better. Thousands of people marched through the streets of Lima, the capital, Thursday night, demanding the resignation of Dina Boluarte, the current president who has only been in power for a little over a month. They were also demanding changes to the constitution, new elections, and the release of former president Castillo, who remains in jail after a judge ruled he must stay in pretrial detention for 18 months. Also Thursday, Peru's labor minister Eduardo Garcia Birmisa resigned, calling on President Boluarte to apologize for the 49 deaths in the protest and hold general elections before April 2024. And he's not the only one who holds the current government responsible for the deadly clashes between security forces and protesters that have swept the country. Peru's top prosecutor's office launched an inquiry Tuesday into Boluarte and senior cabinet ministers over the deaths that have happened during the current turmoil. Peru's Prime Minister Alberto Tarola made it clear the president, he said, will not resign. Let's take a listen. She will not resign. That will not happen. Not because she does not want to, but because the Constitution requires that this constitutional succession needs to fall into place. And because to leave the presidency vacant will open a dangerous door to anarchy. And that will not happen. I want to address the 33 million Peruvians. Trust democracy. Trust the state of law. And Eleni, this is the latest chapter of Peru's political crisis. The South American country has had, listen to this, six presidents since 2018. And if the unrest is not solved soon, the current situation may be unsustainable for the current one. Back to you. All right, Rafael Romo uh, for us. Thank you so much. Days after an anti-government mob ransacked government buildings in the Brazilian capital, the new president is vowing to remove die-hard supporters of his predecessor from power. President Lula da Silva says some of Brazil's military police and members of the armed forces colluded with protesters, helping them to enter the Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace 
on Sunday. Lula says he wants to see all of the tapes from inside government buildings to determine who was complicit in the violence. Police eventually dispersed the crowd with tear gas and arrested around 1,800 people, but that was only after Lula ordered the federal government to step in to stop the riots. Now questions are being asked about the role played by the police, as Isa Suarez reports. They came in their hundreds, on alert and with weapons at the ready, a show of force to protect democracy and head off expected pro-Bolsonaro protesters. For the police, this was about projecting control and order. After growing accusations, they colluded with rioters on January the 8th. Video shared on social media showed security forces talking to protesters. Some even standing idle as rioters stormed the three branches of power. Former policeman Cassio believes some of the criticism is unwarranted. Alguns policiais some policemen ended up not acting because they didn't think there was a risk of invasion. Also, we've had a big ideological influence inside the security forces, right-wing influence. I don't think it was incompetence. For the last four years, Brazilian forces have taken orders from former President Jair Bolsonaro. But several sources here tell me what remains are accusations of a politicized police force. We have research results that show that between 50 and 60 percent of policemen were Bolsonarismo sympathizers. But that doesn't mean they are against democracy. President Lula da Silva has called for tough action to stamp out any acts of collusion within the security forces in Brasilia. And he's tasked this man, Ricardo Capelli, with doing it. Police officers have every right to make their political choice. That doesn't interest me. What is important is the respect for the Constitution. Respect that Capelli says most have, even as investigations begin into the role some may have played. Still, he believes they were set up to fail. What happened on the 8th and today's operation clearly demonstrates that was the absence of command. The previous head of security was traveling. The man he's referring to is Anderson Torres. Until December 31st, Torres was Bolsonaro's justice minister. After leaving office, he became head of security for Brasilia on January the 2nd. Muda. He changes the core of the leadership, travels and leaves the office without command, allowing the unacceptable actions of the 8th. Torres denies wrongdoing and says on Twitter that he's always based his actions on ethics and legality. Despite that comment, authorities have issued a warrant for his arrest. His involvement and ties to Bolsonaro, too much of a coincidence, Capelli tells me. He was justice minister to Jair Bolsonaro. That's a confidence role and one of the highest importance. He would not be justice minister if he didn't have President Bolsonaro's complete confidence. A damning accusation that suggests the enormity of the security challenge ahead. Isa Suarez, CNN. Brasilia, Brazil. Well, coming up after the break, Graceland in mourning at the shock death of Lisa Marie Presley at only 54. We all saw her at the Golden Globes only a few days ago. The sad details are up next. Lisa Maria Presley, the only child of Alvis, 
died suddenly on Thursday after suffering an apparent cardiac arrest. Presley had appeared in public just days earlier at the Golden Globe Awards where the star of a biopic about her father won the Best Actor category. She was 54 years old. Joining me now is CNN's entertainment reporter, Chloe Malas. Uh, Chloe, such sad news. I know you were also at the Golden Globes. Um, we saw her just a few days ago, um, remembering her father's legacy. Um, take us through what we know. You know, there are still so many questions left unanswered. We don't have the autopsy report. We don't uh, know what potentially could have caused this. But we do know that paramedics were called to her home Thursday morning in Calabasas, California, for a possible cardiac arrest. Her mother, uh, Priscilla, taking to social media last night, asking for prayers and support, really leading many to believe that perhaps she would pull through, not knowing how dire the situation was. We know her mother was at her bedside. We know that one of her daughters, Riley Keough, an actress, was right at her bedside as well. And then shortly thereafter, I received a statement from Priscilla Presley's representative saying that she didn't make it. Um, and like you said, 54 years old, a life lived in the spotlight since the moment that she was born, the only child of Elvis Presley. And she leaves behind three children. And it's been a rough time for her. She lost her one of her children, Benjamin, to suicide in 2020. And she op opened up about that loss in an essay this summer in July that she penned for National Grief Awareness Month. And you know, this is a family that has experienced a lot of hardship, a lot of grief. And, you know, this just adds to that very, very sad list of things that they've gone through. Yeah, and especially watching um, the biopic on, on Elvis, you, you get the sense of what she went through, what her family went through. She was a musician in her own right. Um, she built a career, a name for herself as well. I mean, an interesting legacy that she leaves behind. You know, she spoke in interviews in the past that she didn't realize how, how quite big her father's shoes were to fill, but she loved music. She loved writing music. She loved performing. Um, at one point, she even married and had children with uh, someone in her band. And so uh, one of her albums uh, went on to hit number five on the Billboard uh Hot 100 chart. So she, I think it was certified gold. And, you know, she was a very, you know, acclaimed musician and had a lot of fans and people really loved her. And when it comes to the Elvis movie from Baz Luhrmann, that's getting a lot of Oscars buzz that Austin Butler just won the Golden Globe for earlier this week. Um, this was a celebratory time for the family. You know, this was a moment where they were celebrating, you know, her father's life. And she was a big supporter of that film. So very sad. Um, timing for all of this to be happening and what yeah. a wonderful life she did lead though indeed. very interesting colorful life yeah yeah chloe Melas, always good to see you thank you so much thank you well it is friday the 13th so i might as well talk about ufos the u.s government has received over 350 new reports of what it's calling unidentified aerial phenomenon or UFOs since March 2021. They're in a new report released by the U.S. Director of National Intelligence. Lawmakers have put pressure on the Pentagon to investigate claims of extraterrestrial activity. The Pentagon attributes almost half of these incidents to drones, to birds and balloons. Well, that's it for the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Connect the World is up next. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.